morning, church. The reading this morning is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, 8 through 17. It is found on page 305 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to turn there. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and you shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Dear Lord, just thank you that we can gather here before you this Sunday. Um, I thank you that, um, I just pray that we, like David, that we read about this morning would have hearts that desire to worship you. Uh, we know that David was far from a perfect man. Uh, his, his life was filled with sin, and yet you chose him, you used him, and he did great things for you. And so I just pray that we too uh, would not allow our lives to be identified by our sins, but instead that our identity would be in you, uh, that it would be in the power of your Holy Spirit that's working within us. And so I just pray that we would turn to you again and again um, in all things, that we would glorify you and worship you in our praise of you this morning. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. Good to be among you all again. I think it's been about two years. Am I on? Okay, good. I think it's been about two years. I think the last time I preached was Genesis 28. I think it's been about two years. And there are some that I recognize and uh, some I don't. Uh, it is. Hi. 
I can project my voice. It's on? Very good. Let me start again. No, I won't do that. Um, so it's a privilege to be here. My assignment this week, a little bit of a pun there, because Aaron preached on the assignment last week. Scripture passage this morning that I'll be preaching from is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. I invite you to open your Bibles. If you are using the Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 855. Swinging for the fences. I hope that is correct. I'm going to read that passage before I begin preaching. So, again, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Since we can't pray enough, would you join me in a word of prayer? Our God and our Father, make the book live to me. Show me my sin. Show me my Savior. And make the book live to me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are old enough, you will remember those commercials from the, pub the publisher's Clearinghouse Sweepstakes. Remember, it would be a, a family and they would get a knock at the door or a ring and they'd open the door and there'd be someone holding one of those life-size giant checks with an obscene amount of money on it. It'd win something like $10 million, $20 million, whatever the amount was. 
And I used to imagine as a kid what it would be like to get a check like that at the door. And obviously I never did, that's why I'm a pastor. <laughs> now imagine what it would have been like for Mary to hear from an angel of the Lord, the, Gabri the angel Gabriel no less, that she was supposed to be the mother of the Messiah. Sort of puts that $10 million or $20 million, whatever that was, um, makes it a bit small. We see here in verse 26 through 27, we're going to be looking at the announcement of Gabriel to Mary. So in verses 26 and 27, we see what it looks like when God majors in the minors. I haven't thought about toying maybe with a statement like six months later in the middle of nowhere, but I think the other one was better. So the angel Gabriel goes to Mary. Who is Mary? Well, one of the sources I looked at said that the Greek word here for virgin refers in the Jewish culture to a 12 to 14 year old girl. 12 to 14 years old. Right. Girls in that culture could have been engaged as early as 12, but no younger. She's 12 to 14 years old. She's from Nazareth in Galilee, a.k.a. Nowhereville. Nazareth is nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament. And outside of the New Testament, it is not mentioned in any other writings for another two centuries, about 325 B.C. It was insignificant, unimportant. Speaking of Galilee, you are all, I don't know, are you still studying the book of John right now? Okay, so you finished that. So you remember in John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52, when Nicodemus, who's gone to Christ under cover of darkness, in chapter 3, he's speaking to the Pharisees in defense of Christ, and he says, does our law allow us to charge someone that we have not heard speak? To which you remember the Pharisees said to him, are you also from Galilee? They were deriding him. They're like, you are acting like that backwoods carpenter. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, as I'm sure you all know, that was incorrect. Jonah was from Galilee and possible, possibly a few other prophets. But all that to say, Galilee was no, nowhere. And then furthermore, Nazareth. You remember, having studied the book John 1, verses 40 and 45, when Jesus finds Philip, and Philip goes to Nathaniel, and Nathaniel says, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets spoke about. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You remember what Nathaniel said. He said, really? Get out of town. He said, nothing good can come from Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nazareth is like one of those places that's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's, it's nowhere. It says that Mary was engaged to Joseph. Now, this is not like our typical type of engagement. Like This was a legal binding contract. Money was transacted. If Mary, as she will later be accused, if she had stepped out on Joseph, or if they have even messed around, right, because they're considered married, but until, but not really until they've consummated the marriage. If anything had happened prior to the two-step version of Jewish marriage, she could have been put to death. They both could have been put to death. Could have been stoned to death. You find this in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Which begs the question, ladies, what were you like at 12 years old? 13 years old, 14. Did you 
play sports? Were you into boys? Did you have an annoying little brother? Did you have an older brother that you admired? He adored you. Did you have a popular older sister? Or were you an only child? At the end of the day, as was with Mary, you would have worshipped the God of your father. Not just the God of your father, the God of your fathers, plural. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You would have heard from your parents the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. You would have heard about the God of your fathers all of your life. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Shema, it's Hebrew, for to hear. 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. As a faithful Jewish girl, you would have been taught that. And so you would have worshipped the God of Israel. In verses 28 through 33, we see the announcement. The announcement. Since Aaron already explained who Gabriel was last week and his role in God's redemptive plan, I won't belabor the point. But notice how Gabriel greets her, O oh, favored one. Your translation might say something like, highly favored one, or favored woman. Regarding angelic visitations in the Bible, there is nothing like this in all of Scripture, where an angel shows reverence to a person, and a woman no less. Remember in that culture that men didn't even talk to women. John chapter 4, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and his disciples come up and they don't know what to make of it. Think about it. Neither Moses had this kind of experience. We know that angels played a part in the transmission of the plans for the tabernacle. Even Paul, um, the great apostle in the book of Acts, didn't have this kind of angelic visitation. Acts chapter 12, we see Peter in prison, surrounded by Roman guards. The angel that's there to free him hits him on the side and says, get up. The angel definitely did not revere Peter. The only other instance of something like this in scriptures in Daniel 9, where the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel, and Gabriel says, I've been sent to help you understand these visions. And he says, oh man, most beloved. But there's nothing like this, this visitation in all of Scripture. One commentator states that the word used here for favor carries the sense that you have been favored with grace, with an accent on anticipatory grace. Mary is not earning God's grace. She is receiving God's predetermined blessing. In other words, God didn't just look down from heaven and say, oh, she's nice. I like that one. She'll make a good mom for you. God wasn't, as we might say, pinning the tail on the donkey. The plan of redemption can be traced all the way back through the scriptures. Back to Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It can be traced back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Back to the genealogy of David found 
in the last chapter of Ruth, Ruth 4. Back to the call of Abraham in the opening verses of Genesis 12, all the way back to Genesis 3.15 and back into eternity. This sermon isn't about the philosophical questions of the plan of salvation. Questions like, if God knew man was going to sin, why did he create him? Or how can evil exist if there's a good God? No, we do sin. We are evil. And this announcement is about God's remedy for our sin and for the evil that plagues the world. And that said, let us move on. Notice next what Gabriel says to her. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. So whether it's to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, when God is commissioning Moses, the burning bush, and God says to him, I will be with you. Or whether it's to Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, when God says to Joshua, my servant Moses is dead, rise and take the land. I will be with you. I was praying through the Psalms last week in Psalm 46. Verse 11 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. Or even in the last chapter of the book of Matthew, where the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God is with his people. God is with and for his people. No matter where we are, no matter what we are doing, no matter what we are facing or will face, the Lord God is with his people. I think it was Aaron who said last week that the command most often repeated in the Bible is, do not be afraid. And just as he commanded Zechariah in the passage that he preached from last week, so Gabriel commands Mary here. The context surrounding the command is different, though. So great is the announcement of the blessing that Mary is to receive that it's, it's bracketed by God's favor. I mean, the, if you think about it, the, the, the announcement, it's got titanic significance to Mary, to Israel, and to the world. You see this bracketing of God is showing you favor in the beginnings of verses 28 and verse 30. It's almost as if the angel Gabriel is saying, yeah, yeah, I, I understand that you know I'm an angelic being sent from God, but you, you need to get over that. You need to focus on the fact that God wants to bless you big time. Mary's reasonable fear cannot distract from what God has for her, for Israel, for us who believe and for those who will believe. Now look in verse 31. Now, there's nothing unusual about Mary getting pregnant. She is, after all, a woman. Except you all know the story. But more importantly than what you know or may not know is what the Bible says. And here at this point, I'm, remember, I'm reminded of what Albert Moeller said about the Bible in that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. So here in verse 27, notice first that it says that she was a virgin. Moreover, we are told twice in the same verse that she is a virgin. Mary tells us herself in verse 34 that she is a virgin. And incidentally, have you ever noticed in verse 27 that, that you learn about her purity before God, even before you learn her name in Luke's Gospel? The angel Gabriel was sent to a virgin. 
And then, oh, by the way, her name is Mary. Right? That's pretty significant. Now, some may, I can understand if some may be a bit unnerved by how many times I've used the word virgin, but there are at least two good reasons for that. One is simply because the Bible does. God's Word does. In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 27, right, Paul is hurrying to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost. And he bypasses Ephesus, where he's been the pastor there for three years, because he recognizes that he stops there. He'll be delayed by all the farewells and goodbyes and boo-hoo-hoos he's going to get. So he goes to Miletus, and then he calls the Ephesian elders to himself, and he breaks the news to them that he will never see them again. But the first thing that he says to them in that encounter is that he says, I testify that I am not guilty. I am guiltless of innocent blood. And the reason, he says, is because I have not failed to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Aaron, as your pastor, has been charged by the living God to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I, though not a pastor here, I'm a pastor at the East Randolph Baptist Church, I have been charged to declare to you all today the whole counsel of God. Because Aaron will give an account, I will give an account, Marty will give an account, anybody else who stands here or in any other pulpit will give an account and receive stricter judgment. So that's reason number one. But the second reason is in Luke chapter one. Just flip the page. It might be on the same page. Look with me. Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Luke chapter one, verses one through four. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. See, Luke explains his purpose in writing the gospel so that Theophilus, and by extension all believers, may have confidence in what they've been taught so that they can trust the scriptures. So in light of that, here's a question for you. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that your salvation rests on the veracity, on the truth of the virgin conception of Christ? Think about that for a moment. Consider with me now, we talk about Christ's death and resurrection. Well and good, absolutely right and necessary for us to do so. For Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. However, to qualify as our Savior, the Lord Jesus had to be without sin. Again, as you all went through the Gospel of John, you will remember in John chapter 8, when the Lord Jesus is having another, yet another confrontation with the Pharisees. And he answers them in verse 46 by asking the question, which of you convicts me of sin? Which of you convicts me of sin? You remember that they could answer him nothing. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth of Christ's sinlessness, wrote, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of Christ. I would say that is a very significant data point. Our salvation hinges on that. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, I want to leave verse 31 here for a bit and jump down to verse 34. We'll be sure to return there shortly where we left off. In verses 34 through 37, you see what I'm calling the announcement Q&A. The announcement Q&A. If Jesus is sinless, how is it then that he is sinless? Well, simply because he didn't have a sin nature. Now, again, this isn't the time to deal with philosophical, theological questions about whether Jesus could or could not sin. It's enough right now to know that he did not sin. For everything hinges on that. He did not sin. You'll remember that our sin nature comes from Adam at the fall when he and Eve disobeyed God. When Adam fell, all humanity fell with him. Right? He was our representative. That's why it talks about in the New Testament that just how sin came through one man, salvation comes through another man, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. So we are at East Randolph Baptist Church going through the book of Hebrews. And last month I preached on the last eight chapters of Hebrews chapter 3. And one of the things I noted is that as we are sometimes tempted to forget, we're not sinners because we do bad things. It's not because, oh, I sinned against Aaron or I stole Dale's pencil, therefore I'm a sinner. No, we were born with a sin nature, therefore we sin. In his great prayer of confession after he sinned with Bathsheba and then had her husband murdered, David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Your translation might say something like, Indeed, I was guilty when born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now, David's not saying that his conception was sinful. But like his mother, he too is sinful because he received a sin nature from her. Now that doesn't mean that Mary was sinless when we get to Christ. Though she was from nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. Now some of you have maybe come out of a background where you were taught that Mary was sinless. Well, let me tell you, that's simply not true. That's actually heresy. Mary didn't think that of herself at all. Though it's outside the scope of this sermon, you need only look to verse 47 to see that. Furthermore, if you read Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 8, that will also disabuse you of that view. You will be persuaded otherwise. Nevertheless, Mary was an exceptionally faithful young woman and at her young age, but not exceptional without qualification. Exceptional, yes, in faith, but not without qualification. That is an important distinction to make. She, too, was a sinner, needed a savior, the one she was going to give birth to. That's staggering when you think about it. It's just it's, it's remarkable. After Gabriel's announcement, Mary asked in verse 34, how will this be? And Gabriel explains to her that the Holy Spirit will come upon her and the power of the Most High will overshadow her. Now, what does that remind you of? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. For me, it reminds me of Genesis chapter 1, 
verses 1 and 2. Genesis chapter 1, you need not turn there. I'll read it for you, if I can get there. All right, I'm not getting there. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Just like the Holy Spirit at creation brooded over the formless mass of what would become the earth, so the Holy Spirit overshadows the Virgin Mary creating Christ in her womb. It's really remarkable. As one commentary confirmed, the power of the Most High here is clearly speaking of the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. He is the one who gives life. He regenerates believers. He enables us to trust in the Christ of the gospel once we have heard it. He gives spiritual gifts for service and gives illumination of the scriptures, among other things. It's a result of his work that the baby to be conceived in Mary will not have a sin nature like his mother. It's because of the work of the Holy Spirit that the child born to Mary will be called Holy, the Son of God. Speaking of the child being called Holy, James R. Edwards writes in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, Gabriel's pronouncement does not address the preexistence of the Son before the Incarnation, but the wording that Jesus will be called the Son of God, not become such, can be taken to support his preexistence. This guy's much smarter than one, but I think I can do a little better. Listen to the words here of Micah 5.2, and let this confirm the truth of this to you. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be called among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Amen and amen. It's promised. Let's return to verses 32 and 33. So when Mary hears that Gabriel, or when Mary hears that Gabriel tells her that her son will be the son of the Most High, and that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, that he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and that this kingdom will have no end. While we may not have a clue about what this is all about, Mary knows exactly what's going on here. And rest assured that her mind is blown. Now, how do I know all this? Well, for one, in verse 34, she doesn't ask for an explanation about places and names. She just asks the most important question. How am I going to have a baby when I've never been with a man? So let's unpack what this means. First, Mary knows exactly who the Most High is referring to. Because in Genesis chapter 14, and I remember very distinctly, not long after Aaron had been here, he preached on this. And he made the size comparison about how Vermont was structurally similar to Israel. In Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek blesses Abraham using the title of the Most High. It's a common name throughout the Psalms, and it's used in other places of the Old Testament by individuals such as Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. 
Most High was a common name for God in the Old Testament. Second, the passage from 2 Samuel that John read for us is God's promise to David that his line will be, an un will be unending and that one of his descendants will rule over the kingdom forever. And that kingdom will last forever. Third, the house of Jacob refers to Israel. Okay, Jacob was the father of 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's name was changed to Israel in Genesis 32. So that's what's all going on there in that passage. Jacob's name was changed aside in 32 after his long night of wrestling with the angel of the Lord. So to say that this is a lot for Mary to process is an understatement. It's an understatement. And yet her only question, despite all this, to Gabriel in verse 34 is, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, certainly in one sense, all these other details pale in comparison to the daunting reality of having a child without the involvement of a man. Yet on a deeper level, her response is utterly remarkable. In verse 38, we see that, as I like to say, Mary had the right stuff. I'm thinking about an old movie about the, I think the Apollo 11 pilots, I think maybe 13, if you haven't seen it. Okay, truth behold, I haven't seen it either, but I think it'd be worth the time. So the right stuff. So having heard Gabriel's explanation of how her child will be conceived and the similarly miraculous work of God in the life of her relative Elizabeth is enough for Mary. That's all she needed. James R. Edwards again in his commentary of Luke writes this. Her response is perhaps the best definition of faith in the Bible. The desire for God's word to become reality in our lives. No one in Israel ever responded to God as Mary does. Mary demands no outside proofs or signs that the impossible shall be made possible. She receives God's word in abandonment and trust. The troubling word of verse 29 has become the sustaining word, the sole sufficiency of her life. For the first time in the divine human encounter, God has found a worthy partner. Here is a portrait in contrast. Remember again in preaching on Zechariah last week in his response to Gabriel's assignment. Zechariah, theologically trained, a man of the word upright and righteous, yet unbelieving. And then Mary, a young girl, yet devout and unwavering in her trust in God. Might I suggest to you that most of us, if not all of us, are like Zechariah. But would God be pleased to make us like Mary. That said, the question that might be on the minds of some of you is, well, that's all well and good, Femi. So what's the difference between Zechariah's question to Gabriel and Mary's question to Gabriel? Zechariah asked a question. Mary asked a question. Why does Zechariah get the short end of the stick and Mary gets off scot-free? Well, it's because of this. When Zechariah asked in verse 18, he asked from a heart of unbelief. And he gave reasons to support his unbelief. He wanted proof. Now think about this. As a faithful Jew, he would have known the story of God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah when he gave them Isaac in their old age. 
But as a priest, his response was absolutely inexcusable. Whereas with Mary, on the other hand, understanding the logistics of how babies come to be, wanted to understand how God was going to bypass the natural order of things that he had set in motion in his, created, in his creation mandate. You see, infertility that Elizabeth was struggling with is unnatural. It is a result of God's curse on sin in Genesis 3, whereas babies are a blessing. Think of Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and cling to his wife and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. That is God's blessing before the fall, not the infertility that resulted after the fall. In verses 39 through 45, we see that the hills are alive with the sound of praise. Some of you thought I was going to say the hills are alive with the sound of music. Um, I, I, I at least hope you know that reference. Mary leaves without delay to go see Elizabeth. That is, however long it took for her to prepare for the journey is as long as it took for her to get out of Dodge. Now, this is no, this is no visit to the town next door. And commentary noted that this would have been a journey of three to five days into the hill country of Judah. So Mary would have gone with a caravan or something similar. There's no way the parents of a 12 to 14 year old girl would have let her journey by herself over that distance and over that duration of travel. Right? Especially as dangerous as that part of the world could have been at that time. Now, why would Mary go visit Elizabeth? Well, it's because Elizabeth could relate to her. Mary's mother could not relate to her. Mary's friends would not have been able to relate to her. The circumstances were so unique that nobody who had not similarly experienced God's power in her life would have been unlikely able to provide good counsel. And I think herein lies a principle for God's people. See, the world cannot understand the workings of the kingdom of God. Until the Spirit of God regenerates someone to life in Christ, they will remain spiritually blind and deaf. In other words, seek counsel from God's people. The world has nothing to offer you in the way of spiritual truth. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, well, if you need some work done with your car, you don't go see a mechanic. That's not what I'm talking about. But as God's word says, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And that is not just his word. We often forget that is also his people. Ephesians chapter 4 says, God gave the apostles, or the prophets and the apostles, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Aaron and I might be vocational in our ministry, but that does not excuse you all from the role that you play in and among the body of Christ. As soon as Mary enters Elizabeth's home and greets her, John regenerated in the womb by the Holy Spirit. We saw this back last week when Aaron preached on um, that first passage of Luke. We see this in verse 15. He is the first person to rejoice over the coming of the Lord Jesus leaping in his mother's womb as we see in verses 41 and 44. Even in Elizabeth's womb John is fulfilling his role as the forerunner of the Messiah. 
And interestingly enough for me anyway, as I was studying this text, I realized that the Holy Spirit is also affirming the personhood of the baby John. Now that has amazing implications for us in the world we live in today, where the life of the unborn is threatened in the womb. David, writing in Psalm 139, I'll just read this to you, verses 13 through 15 says, For you formed me, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Poetic language for being made in the womb. So the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth, giving her revelation concerning the child in Mary's womb, and the result is praise to God. And even here, in verse 45, Mary is commended for her faith or believing in the word of God through the angel Gabriel to her. So what can we take away from this passage? Someone I have recently come to greatly respect would say that um, certainly more can be said than what I'll share, but I think these are some key things. First, the announcement proves that God was going to keep his promise to David. I don't have enough time to detail the intervening thousand years between 2 Samuel 7 and Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. Not least of all is the Babylonian exile. And yet God saw the preservation of the, of the Davidic bloodline throughout that entire time. If then, if God was able to do that, is he not able, will he not, fulfill all his promises to his people in Christ? He is faithful and trustworthy. You can take him at his word. Second, the announcement shows the lengths that God went to to provide salvation for sinners such as you and I. Such was and is our ruined state that it took nothing less than the incarnation of the second member of the Godhead being conceived as a human baby, taking on a human nature and living as a man, free of sin, no less. Such is the love of God for sinners. Third, the announcement to Mary is the culmination of the announcement to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent which they believed. It's the culmination of the announcement to Abraham in Genesis 12 that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And he believed it. It's the culmination of the announcement to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that his house would last forever. A dynasty would produce an heir who would sit on his throne and rule over a kingdom that would never end. And he believed that God was able to keep his promise. We've seen that Mary believed the angel's announcement to her. But do you? But do you? Do you believe that the Son of God has come through a virgin birth, lived sinlessly, was crucified and died a shameful death, and rose in triumph on the third day? That one day he will return, and that you will stand before him to give an account for how you've lived. 
whether you've lived in a way that's pleasing to him or in a way that wasn't. Have you trusted in him for your sins, to save you for your, from your sins, from your, from your rebellion, from your self-centered living instead of your God-centered living? During this time of year, during this Christmas season, we, we make much of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. And so we should. So we should. For so he is. But the question is, is God with you? Are you with him? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we who live on this side of the cross, Lord, we, I think we, we take for granted how hard it would have been for Mary to believe all that was revealed to her in that announcement. We certainly see that Zechariah didn't at the first and was made to. But we have the privilege of seeing the story from beginning to end insofar as we are in where we live now for the Lord Jesus is yet to, to return. And yet we do not believe or we might trust in Christ, but functionally we often live as those who have never received this announcement, those who have not received the proclamation of the gospel. Lord, would you by your word and your spirit, and yes, even your people, would you help us to not be unbelieving, but believe for Christ's sake who bore our sins in his body on the tree, to the praise and glory of your name and by your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.